let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. And let's see if we can make some comments that will be helpful to us as we bring before the Lord our needs and our children, the next generation, prodigals, and revival, generally speaking. My wife shared with me a couple of days ago a verse out of Revelation 12. I put it in the newsletter, and it was just something that struck her, and then as I read it, uh, it struck me as well. Uh, it's that verse that talks about the war in heaven. Did you know that there's war in heaven? Now we're talking about the uh, heavenly realm. Um, we're not talking about uh, heaven, perhaps, in, in the traditional sense, but certainly the heavenly realm. And there is war. There is, there is war, and we, we see there in Revelation 12 that, that the dragon is fighting against Michael and his, his angels, and there is war. And sometimes I think we can forget the fact that there is war, that we are in a war. And we read in Joshua that th this, is a, this is a war situation. The children of Israel are in a war. They are about to launch into uh, a war, a great battle, many battles, in order to take over the land that was promised to them. And there is a land that's promised to us, in a sense, if you want to say it that way. God has promised to us very great blessings. And it's going to take a little bit of fight in us to be able to fight against those strongholds that are in our lives, in our own hearts, to, to conquer this land, to take what is rightfully ours, there is a war, and there is resistance. There is great resistance. But the thing that is interesting to me as you read Joshua, as you start to read Joshua, is how unconventional this war is. It's an unconventional warfare. You've heard that term, unconventional warfare. Well, this is very unconventional as well, and it will strike you. There's three aspects of this unconventional warfare that I... I would like to just focus on. And the easiest way to hang our thoughts would be on the words, number one, world, number two, worship, number three, work. Okay, and these are just very loose words just to help us organize our thoughts. But let's take a look at this unconventional warfare uh, that we see here in Joshua. Joshua chapter 5, the first the first point is is the point world. And what do I mean by that? In verse number two, it says, At that time the Lord said unto Joshua, Make thee sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And so what I would like to see here in this unconventional war that, that we're in is the fact that, you know, you would think these sharp knives... These sharp knives, we're wanting to sharpen these knives so that we can go in and attack. That would seem like the conventional thinking. But what makes this so unconventional is that we are supposed to be sharpening, sharpening these knives 
for us. Make sharp knives, not to attack the enemy, but to circumcise. The first thing that that the Lord presents to Joshua here, the first order of business before launching into this warfare that we're in is to direct those sharp knives to our own flesh. Very unconventional. This is not something that we would think of. This is not something certainly the world cares for. But this is God's way. God's way is always to make sure that there are sanctified vessels. One of the first things that Jehoshaphat did in his reign was to sanctify the Levites. First order of business was sanctify the Levites. And the first thing that happens here, as, as soon as they cross over the River Jordan, is circumcision. Now this was circumcision just to remind ourselves, is a practice, it is a token. Genesis, the first reference to circumcision, teaches us that circumcision is a token. It's a visible representation of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's a token, it's a visible symbol. Something outward to show an inward truth. Circumcision. But it's a, it's a it's a and the rest of the Bible teaches us that it is a cutting off of the flesh and you know this is a it's a very graphic type of a picture you know it's it's not very uh, pleasant of a picture let's say and I suppose you can also make a case that it's a very painful um, picture and. It is the cutting off of the flesh. And the, the Bible has plenty to say about this, of course, and it's not just about the circumcision that's pictured physically. It's the circumcision of the heart. Moses talks about not having circumcised lips. We're to have circumcised ears. And in Galatians, it talks about the actual physical act of circumcision is not the point Galatians is teaching us. It's the circumcision of Christ. So... We don't want to focus on the picture, the picture as if the picture is all that matters here. It's what it represents, and that is, it represents something inwards, an inward reality. But it also represents a cutting away of the flesh. Okay, this is the point. This is why I put it under the heading of world. The world, the flesh, the devil, this is, this is our corrupting influence in our heart. Before we take a step into the promised land of blessing, there needs to be sin dealt with. Before you enter into heaven itself, sin needs to be dealt with. This is the circumcision of Christ. So we, we know, we understand this. Before we enter into heaven itself, nothing that defiles enter in. Sin needs to be cut away. And that is the ultimate meaning of of our circumcision of Christ. But there is also a sense where before God will outpour his blessing upon a people, sin needs to be dealt with. There needs to be a circumcising of, of sorts of the flesh. One of our United Prayer friends uh, wrote an email 
with a great burden along those lines. A need to deal with the sin in our own hearts. Because it is oh so easy for us to lament about the sins of society and the sins of the world and the sins of the bad people out there. And we're not really breaking up the fallow ground of our own hearts. It's, 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 a, it's a continual checkpoint that we need to address. This is not something that we can say one time and then it'll be done. This is something I believe that we need to constantly return to. Revivals in the past have always been marked by a tremendous brokenness among the people, a heightened sensitivity to sin and free confession of sin and a, and a righting of wrongs between brethren. If you read anything about revivals in the past, you will, you will understand this is true. The what was called the Korean Pentecost. This is the revival that took place in the early 1900s in Korea when Christianity was really just recently introduced. They had a, a um, an outpouring of the Spirit. It, it was called the Korean Pentecost. It was well documented. The book was written about it, and it was it it pretty much started, if I'm, my memory is correct, where a very broken individual would begin confessing his sins, things that he had done to wrong his brethren. And he was broken, and God broke many hearts through that. It started a great revival. This sharpening of the knives needs to begin here first, we don't want to become hyper-introspective and have a sort of a melancholy that follows us like a dark cloud over our heads and we, we know nothing of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. So this is not what I'm going for. But, at least what we see here in, here in Joshua, there needed to be something set right. This was... This was not right. A previous generation had failed in the circumcision practice, which is a picture, yes. But this, ha this was the first order of business, is the point. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Everything else is a waste of time, essentially, unless we get this right. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands, a pure heart. Now, ultimately, the fulfillment of this and the whole reason why this is even possible is because of Christ. Legally, he has secured this for us. And we rejoiced in that and we can't get away from that. The fact that we're even able to pray at all is because of our standing in Christ. And we have to rejoice in that. But there's not just a legal aspect to, 
to things, you know, on paper, the official document, that is legal and that is the whole grounds. But if I can say it this way, there's also a local aspect to truth. It has to be outworked in our hearts and in our experience here, locally. It's legal, yes, we rejoice in that. But there needs to be constant, daily, inward cleansing. The whole reason why we're able to utter the, the Lord's Prayer our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., is because of our legal standing. But then it goes on to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is a, this, this ongoing local cleansing that we need day by day. So the first aspect of this unconventional warfare is that of the world, a cutting away of the flesh, circumcision. Let's not get away from that. The second thing is worship, if I can say it this way. Worship. What do I mean by that? In chapter 5, if you go down, it talks about Joshua there. He's, he's overlooking the city of Jericho, and he sees a man with a sword drawn, and he goes up to him, and he says, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Joshua is about to pounce on him. He's ready to fight. And, of course, this is, this is the Lord. That's standing there. And he said, verse 14, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. In essence, the Lord is saying, wrong question. It's not, are you for us? It's, who are we with? In other words, this is not our war. This is not about us at all. At all. This is not about us. Are you for us? Or for you know, No, wrong question. I'm the captain. And then, of course, Joshua goes on to worship. In other words, there needed to be a recognition that this is not our war. This is not about us. This is not about our kingdom. This is about the captainhood, if I can say that, of Jesus Christ. He's the captain, he's the sovereign, he's the one to whom we must bow and worship. This is not about us. Sometimes we can become so um, tunnel visioned or siloed. You know what silos are? You know those silos? We can become so siloed where all we see is our little kingdom. And everything that we do and everything that we, we desire or our, even all of our asking is, are you for us? No. We recognize that Jesus Christ is the captain. And we are his servants, and you see here Joshua falling to his face in worship. Whose kingdom is this? Whose war is this? We have to recognize that we are subservient to Jesus Christ. He's the captain. Now, practically speaking, it goes like this. 
sometimes, you know, we don't ever say this, but sometimes when we pray, and, I'm, you know, the more students I'm talking with on campus, they struggle with prayer. And I've heard this even among other pastors. They struggle with prayer because God never answered a prayer from a long time ago that they earnestly prayed and it meant so much to them, God didn't answer. And so they kind of turned on prayer. You're almost saying something like this, Lord, you must do this or else. Again, we would never say those words, but and sometimes in our praying, we can have that attitude of, you must do this or else. Or else what? I guess or else you'll turn your back on the Lord or you'll turn your back on prayer or you'll just say prayer doesn't work or you'll become disillusioned or whatever. Who's the captain here? Who's the one in charge? Who's God? Who is the sovereign? All of our praying, we pray with great desire. Yes, and I don't want us to lose any of that power in our praying to pray with great desire. But we are subservient so that you can look at a, a, at a, at a student who struggles with that, with prayer, because the Lord didn't answer a long time ago. And you can point him to Job. And Job's wife was the one that said, curse God and die. In other words, what's the point? But Job worshipped. And he said, the Lord can take and the Lord can give. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe that's important in our praying. No matter what happens, quote-unquote, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He's the captain. I guess the third thing that we'll say, the first was world, the second was worship, the third was work. And this is Joshua chapter 6. This is very unconventional. Remember, this is we're talking about unconventional warfare. And what was their work? What were they commanded to do? What were they to do? Unconventional, but they were commanded to walk around the wall. Walk around the wall. They were led by the Ark of the Covenant, so that's significant. But their work was to walk around the wall and they were to do it for days and then on that seventh day that last day they were to do it seven times and then of course when they gave the great shout the walls fell flat and they conquered the city what is our work i see this our praying as similar in a sense I don't want to stretch it too much, but is there not a sense that when we're praying and when we bring these names to the Lord, we are surrounding these people 
with our prayers? Is there not a sense where that's true? And they were commanded to, to do this all together. They were all there. All the people. And is there not a sense where we are all here in lockstep as well? And this is unconventional, right? The world would see this as foolish. The world would see what they did as foolish. Of course, nowadays, you know, because of modern man and how smart we are, we're thinking, yeah, that probably loosened the soil and, you know, the walls became... There's always going to be a, a foolish, carnal explanation for the miraculous. But look, this was not a scouting expedition that these people were on, you know, looking around the walls to see, you know, where the where the weak spots were, the cracks. No, they were just walking around. They didn't need to look for, for the weak spots in the walls. The walls were about to fall. They were walking around in obedience, and they were doing it with persistence. It should be noted. And they did it. What does number seven mean in the Bible? It means perfection. So how long do we do this? Until the time is perfect. God's time is perfect. We persist until the perfect time. We persist to perfection. And then the walls will fall flat, you see. We surround with prayers. Those impenetrable walls, they will fall flat. In the perfect time. As long as we persist. So these are three aspects of unconventional warfare. And I trust as we bring our our great needs, our Jerichos, those are the strongholds of the enemy. Don't make any doubt about that. This is a stronghold of the enemy. Stronghold. We encircle with prayer together, united. And in the perfect time, those walls will fall. But he is the captain. And we must deal with our sin in our hearts. By the way, you just know, you just must know that Rahab's house must have been so obvious there. You, you could just see the red coming out of those windows, those red curtains, those red, whatever she had that was red, she had there. It's, I, I just, I love it. And of course, that was a, an expression of her faith in the words of the spies. You put this out there, your household will be saved. So you saw all the red coming out of it. Well, that must be Rahab's house. The walls fell down, her house remained, and she was saved. This is unconventional warfare. Friends, let's seek the Lord now together and see those walls come down. Amen.